Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Radio Westeros, episode 45. In conjunction with History of Westeros, The Dance of the Dragons, part one. Spoilers all books! The Dance of the Dragons is the flowery name bestowed upon the savage, internecine struggle for the Iron Throne of Westeros, fought between two rival branches of House Targaryen during the years 129 to 131 AC. To characterise the dark, turbulent, bloody doings of this period as a dance strikes us as grotesquely inappropriate. No doubt the phrase originated with some singer. The dying of the dragons would be altogether more fitting, but tradition and time have burned the more poetic usage into the pages of history, so we must dance along with the rest. There were two principal claimants to the Iron Throne upon the death of King Viserys I Targaryen, his daughter Rhaenyra, the only surviving child of his first marriage, and Aegon, his eldest son by his second wife. Amidst the chaos and carnage brought on by their rivalry, other would-be kings would stake claims as well, strutting about like mummers on a stage for a fortnight or a moon's turn only to fall as swiftly as they had risen. The dance split the Seven Kingdoms in two, as lords, knights, and small folk declared for one side or the other and took up arms against each other. Even House Targaryen itself became divided when the kith, kin, and children of each of the claimants became embroiled in the fighting. Over the two years of struggle, a terrible toll was taken of the great lords of Westeros, together with their bannermen, knights, and small folk. Whilst the dynasty survived, the end of the fighting saw Targaryen power much diminished, and the world's last dragons vastly reduced in number. The dance was a war unlike any other ever fought in the long history of the Seven Kingdoms. Though armies marched and met in savage battle, much of the slaughter took place on water and especially in the air, as dragon fought dragon with tooth and claw and flame. It was a war marked by stealth, murder and betrayal as well. A war fought in shadows and stairwells, council chambers and castle yards, with knives and lies and poison. 
We couldn't have said it better ourselves. Well, of course we couldn't. Archmaester Gildane wrote that, and Archmaester Gildane is George R. R. Martin. Our best is worse than things he throws away. And The Dance of the Dragons is the period in A Song of Ice and Fire history that George R. R. Martin has written the most about. The Princess and the Queen, the Rogue Prince, and large portions of the world of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood are dedicated to it. It amounts to more coverage than Aegon's Conquest, more than the Blackfire Rebellions, and probably more than even Robert's Rebellion, both of which have secrets yet to be revealed. But The Dance of the Dragons likely has very few. It doesn't seem like we'll be learning too much more. Fire and Blood will begin five years after it ends, and we can't really count on hearing anything significant about it in the remaining A Song of Ice and Fire novels. However, the reverse is very much the case, meaning that The Dance of the Dragons stands out not only as an incredibly detailed saga, complete with build-up and aftermath, but because there are so many parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire itself. It is a prime example of, to go forward, you must go back, in the meta-sense, as history predicts the future. Let's give an example. Upon the death of the king, one side wanted to follow the previous king's will, the other wanted the throne to go to the eldest son, and thought their opposition had bastard heirs. Am I speaking of the Dance of the Dragons or Robert Baratheon? The question of following a dead king's will is front and center before the first book is even half over. Ditto the first half of the show, and here in The Dance of the Dragons. In these cases, the law is both dubious and perhaps irrelevant, because swords have a way of shoving all that aside. Recall that Cersei simply and literally tore Robert's will to shreds, and that's not that much different than what was done with King Viserys' will without the actual shredding. In this case, Alicent Hightower is playing the role of Cersei, and her son, Aegon II, is standing in for Joffrey. The ensuing civil war in A Game of Thrones is a matter of humans fighting humans, excepting that one shadow baby, I guess. And speaking of babies, the mother of dragons' children are but eggs in Danny's possession when the War of Five Kings breaks out, not even hatched, let alone ready to go to war. But we're exploring an age where dragons were at their peak in the Seven Kingdoms, certainly the most that had ever existed, or ever would, during the Targaryen reign, and probably ever in Westeros. This is true both literally and figuratively, for there were never so many Targaryens in Westeros before, either. And perhaps it was only a matter of time before they devoured each other. <laughs> it's the nature of dragons and royal families both, after all. But in this case, the dynastic circumstances and lax attitude of the king, or kings, added significant fuel to the dragon fire. So you could say that the dance is a fascinating story on its own, but since we tend to agree with Archmaester Rigney that history is a wheel, it also has the power to foretell much of what's to come in the later books. Just as it was with The Song of Ice and Fire, the stories that came before the dire wolves were found after Garrod's execution are fascinating as well. They are given to us through memories. Ned's, Jamie's, Catelyn's, Barristan's, Melisandre's, Veramir's. This is the case for the Dance of the Dragons as well. And we'll begin our series with those cases, those stories that led to the stories of dragons fighting dragons, assassinations, and all kinds of other things, like we heard in the opening quote. The players are new but old, unique but familiar. Instead of summer, we'll have sunfire. Instead of Grey Wind and Ghost, we'll have Grey Ghost, and Vagar, and Vermithor, and Silverwing. We'll have heroes and legends like Roddy the Ruin, Adam of Hull, the Sea Snake, the Queen Who Never Was, the Kingmaker, the Rogue Prince, and the White Worm. We'll have riots in King's Landing, Prophets of Doom, False Kings, Shifting Alliances, Valyrian Steel, 
and a lot of people to hate. And who do we have to tell us these stories? Mostly the maesters, of course, but also a sex-obsessed dwarf. So even among our sources, we have a slightly familiar figure, and he serves a similar purpose, having that same trait we all do as readers. Tyrion's love of history is Mushroom's love of history, is our love of history. Ditto his love of stories, and little embellishment never hurt anyone, right? So in this episode, there will be no war. There will be all the stories that made war inevitable, though. To name a few, there is the Great Council, the Year of the Red Spring, and the formation of the Blacks and the Greens, the factions that eventually went to war and almost destroyed each other. And throughout this episode and this series, as usual, we'll see the fate of Westeros balanced on a knife's edge. As Sir Eustace Osgrey would say nearly a century in the future about yet another dynastic conflict, so many ifs, sir, had anyone come out differently. It could all have turned the other way. Well, hey there, Lady Gwyn. Hey there, Aziz. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it, that we've done so many collaborations on the TV show when both of our shows are focused on A Song of Ice and Fire and not Game of Thrones. Yeah, it sure is. It was something that uh, didn't dawn on me until we were pretty deep into the preparations for this episode. But uh, this is, uh, I think this is an exciting collaboration. Um really happy to be getting into this series with you yeah right on um i think too that we're not even sure like a lot of times with these big topics we don't know how long it's going to take us to get through it so it'll take as long as it takes and we're gonna have a lot of fun with it we're gonna cover as much as we can you know lots of analysis and we'll probably focus a lot on some of the characters too huh yeah oh for sure definitely yeah, so this is going to be super fun. We have so much to do, so much to cover, and it's really fun to be working together. Already working on this first episode, we've had great times just uh, discussing some of these things and figuring things out together. So, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I am too. So uh, so are we both, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the way this is going to work is we're putting all the episodes out separately. Uh, the videos will be on the History of Westeros YouTube feed and the podcast will be on the Radio Westeros podcast feed. So if you want to look at either or both, that's how you find them. Yep. And of course, for our patrons, you will be able to access it in the usual way through the Patreon platform. Absolutely. That goes for both of us. Yes. And speaking of patrons... Uh, it's time for us to give thanks to some of our patrons, and we're going to switch things up a little bit. Aziz is going to be reading off some of the Radio Westeros patrons who get their shout-outs here at the top of the episode, and then I'm going to dive into some of the History of Westeros patrons. Yes, yeah, so since this is all written in our script, you could say that we are quite literally flipping the script. Hmm. Well, maybe not literally. That would be like turning it over uh, so you can't read it anymore. So maybe not. Anyway. Hey, speak for yourself. I'm standing <laughs> on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Radio Westeros patrons at the Flaming Lightbringer level, TJ Harrington, at the Dragonsteel level, Peter, at the Pale as Milk Glass level, John Wergarian, Laura, Sister Winter, Rory, Kelly, Whitney, Pepper, Daniel, and Maltude. And thanks to Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, Talanis the Talon, King of Gagossos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black, and Robert IV of House Ardeacor, Burned King of Blazewater Bay, Rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. Dance of the Roses. 
So there's an important analog to the Dance of the Dragons in real world history. As fans, we often speak of the Wars of the Roses between the houses of York and Lancaster in the 15th century as being an inspiration for A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's true that George does take elements from that era of English history, and many others, and weaves them into the tale. But the Wars of the Roses weren't simply about two warring houses, like Stark and Lannister. They actually have a much more complex origin. In fact, many claim that contemporaries in the 15th century initially called the long struggle between York and Lancaster the Wars of the Cousins, a name that should make us students of Targaryen history take note. For in the Dance of the Dragons, the principal claimants and actors all trace their descent from a single king, just as the combatants in the Wars of the Roses did. In other words, they were cousins. Jaehaerys I Targaryen could be said to have a lot in common with Edward III Plantagenet of England, and while that includes having a pack of quarrelsome descendants, the similarities don't end there. Both men were scions of a proud and dominant royal family whose fathers were regarded as weak in some way, certainly as compared to their predecessors and successors alike. As such, both men inherited troubled realms and were tasked with unifying a fractious nobility and restoring their monarchy to a state of strength. Like young Jaehaerys, Edward's reign began with a regency dominated by his mother and her lover. In the case of Jaehaerys, his mother and regent Alyssa Valerian would marry Rogar Baratheon, the Hand. In real life, following the deposition of Edward's father, Edward II, his mother Isabella of France served as co-regent for her son with her lover, Roger Mortimer. Roger, Rogar, hmm? Unlike Rogar Baratheon, Roger Mortimer was married to another woman and therefore not free to marry the queen. But both kings would end up forcibly seizing their power from those regions when their minority was at an end. Although, in the case of Edward III, for once, the real-life story is somewhat bloodier, as Mortimer would lose his head, while Rogar Baratheon merely lost his position. Edward III ruled for 50 years to Jaehaerys' 55. During their long reigns, both kings remained popular and were reputed to be judicious and merciful rulers. Edward famously pardoning the Mortimer heirs and Jaehaerys becoming known as the conciliator for his role in healing the realm following his father's and uncle's disastrous reigns. Unlike Jaehaerys, Edward married a young woman of a noble family from another country. However, while Philippa of Hainault may not have been Edward's sister, she was his second cousin and their marriage did require a papal dispensation, a special permission that absolved closely related family members from the sin of consanguinity, which is perhaps a slightly less extreme version of the doctrine of exceptionalism that the Targaryens would use starting in Jaehaerys' reign to justify their own incest. Like Jaehaerys' sister Queen Alysanne, Philippa would be extremely popular with the commoners and helped her husband to maintain a high level of popularity during his reign, also like Alysanne, Philippa was blessed with 13 children, and similarly, many of those would not survive their parents. In fact, it would be the offspring of a mere handful that would bequeath claims to the crown to their own descendants that would ultimately rip the dynasty apart. Edward III's later reign was marred from time to time by unrest amongst the nobles, burghers, and commoners, but on balance it's seen as a relatively successful reign. He was an unparalleled military commander who encouraged chivalry to flower in England and maintained order as a good king should. His greatest fault is often said to be that he was too liberal with his many sons, elevating them all in ways that led 
to the foundation of future dynastic conflict. And that's the crux of the similarity between the House of Plantagenet in the 14th and 15th centuries and House Targaryen as they entered the second century of their rule in the Seven Kingdoms. Briefly, Edward III's eldest son, Edward of Woodstock, known as the Black Prince, predeceased him, leaving a child heir who would succeed his grandfather to throne as Richard II. His second son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, also died, leaving a daughter who married the great-grandson of the same Roger Mortimer who had been executed at the beginning of Edward's reign and had a son who was briefly considered to be Richard II's heir. Whew. Much like Laenor Valarian, as we'll be discussing, this child was ultimately skipped over when his mother's claim was discounted due to her sex. But he would pass what became known as the Mortimer claim onto his descendants, and this would later become the cornerstone of the Yorkist claim during the Wars of the Roses. Rather than their Mortimer cousin, it would be Edward's third son, John of Gaunt's descendants of the House of Lancaster, who eventually came to throne when Richard II died. But after three generations of Lancastrian kings, the Wars of the Roses would be fought between the Lancastrian heirs and the descendants of Edward's fourth son, Edmund, Duke of York, who had in the meantime married one of the Mortimer descendants of Lionel of Clarence's daughter and so merged the two claims. Phew, again. Add a load of other intermarriages at the usual acceptable degree of cousin incest, and by the time of the York ascendancy in the late 15th century, it would become a subject of extreme debate exactly who had the best claim. Since the key claimants of York actually derived from a younger son, it would be their descent from the Lionel of Clarence's daughter through a female offspring of the Mortimer family upon which they relied in making their own claim. Whew, a third time. And with that said, we can leave the English monarchy there. When compared with the dynastic disputes that plagued the Targaryens from late in the reign of Jaehaerys up to the Dance of the Dragons following the death of the old king's grandson, King Viserys I, the similarities should be clear, even if not one-for-one -one equivalencies. The questions of descent from a female claimant and the rights of younger sons over elder sisters is highly relevant to Westerosi politics in this time period, the Dance of the Dragons is a direct result of these conflicts, and while the warring houses of the main story bear some resemblance to the actual conflicts that occurred in 15th century England, it is the Dance of the Dragons that actually most closely resembles the Wars of the Roses in its origins. Setting Precedents one cannot pinpoint a single event or decision or birth that led to the Dance of the Dragons, but there are a few very distinct events that laid out a path that future generations followed, a path that led towards strife and suffering and fun. Or you could say that it was a lack of certain distinct events, such as any of the early kings of the Iron Throne taking the time to lay down the law with regards to succession. Clarity could have gone a long way towards avoiding conflict. One could argue Aegon the Conqueror himself should have laid down this law, and if he had a daughter before his son Aenys, then he'd have had to make a decision. However, there was no chance for him to set precedent, as he never had a daughter. Many would assume, and a law would reign, as Aegon was, after all, crowned in the Light of the Seven, and so were all the Targaryen kings after him. And by adopting most aspects of Andal culture, he at least tacitly implied that he would follow Andal succession customs, but Aegon did not make this explicit as far as we know, and assumptions do not suffice. King Aenys seemed to favor his son Aegon, but by marrying Aegon to his sister Reyna, who was the eldest child, it wasn't truly clear, and it certainly falls short of setting precedent, especially since the two never actually ruled. Uncle Magar usurped them, after all, and killed Aegon in the process. 
Jaehaerys then followed Maegor to the throne, bypassing elder sister Reyna again, but this can't be considered precedent either, since following Maegor required overthrowing him by force. War is not normal succession, after all. However, to further cloud the issue, Maegor had named Reyna's daughter his heir while there were male Targaryens alive, which doesn't match and a law, even if we could argue that Maegor could disinherit his living nephews. Because there's the matter of incest as well as polygamy, neither of which had been settled by the doctrine of exceptionalism by that point. So while the expectation was there for many, the notion that the crown must pass to the eldest male claimant had not been firmly established by the time Jaehaerys and Alysanne took the throne. It is true that Jaehaerys was a great king, and most rightly consider him the best Westeros has had, and it is also right to credit Queen Alysanne with a large portion of the success of his reign. They made a number of extremely farsighted decisions that improved the lives of the realm as a whole, some of which are still helping the realm today. Two of them were far ahead of their predecessors as rulers. But Fire and Blood made it clear that Jaehaerys was not forward-thinking in regards to succession issues. In this, he was no better than even Magor was, arguably worse. Though he listened to his wife, the queen, on many issues on this, he did not, despite the lengths she took to show him how important it was to the realm and to her personally. Though none of the in-world maesters made the case that we've seen, Alysanne was proven 100% correct over time. Simplicity is crucial in succession. With rare exceptions, it's only when there are questions that there are wars over succession. The murkier the laws, the more room there is for debate, and debates over thrones are often resolved with swords, and in this case, dragons. Since people will fight over thrones without justification, peace really isn't well served by a system that creates excess justifications. During their long marriage, Jaehaerys and Alysanne had two quarrels. The first had nothing to do with succession issues. The second had everything to do with succession issues. And if we're keeping score, considered that had Jaehaerys listened to his wife on this one, much disaster would have been averted. Maybe. Jaehaerys and Alysanne's first child to survive infancy was Daenerys, and when Prince Aemon was born, Jaehaerys referred to him as the heir. Alysanne did not like this, but the issue was shelved in the same manner as it had been by their father Aenys, with their sister Reyna and brother Aegon. Jaehaerys claimed it hardly mattered. Daenerys and Aemon would be married and ruled together, just as they did. But it did matter. There could be no real precedent set, and the realm needed to establish such matters, especially since Daenerys died young, well before any marriage could take place. But some 32 years later, we get our example of added complexity and our first clear precedent. When Aemon died in the fateful year of 92, and Jaehaerys decided to name as his heir Prince Balon, their second son, instead of Aemon's daughter, Rhaenys. Normally, if you have a lord with multiple sons, everything passes to that eldest son and his descendants when that lord dies. Often, all boys are placed before all girls, so gender can impact the order of succession, but it isn't supposed to leave women out altogether. So the only way the lord's second son inherits, normally, is if the first son has no true-born or legitimized descendants. Now, of course, the word normally is kind of suspect here because there's so many exceptions. Maybe I shouldn't have used that term. Lords tend to do what they want with regards to succession. And when they name an heir, who's gonna stop them? 
Usually another lord is not going to interfere with the rights of another lord when it does them no harm, especially when they may want to exercise that same right down the road sometime. And sometimes it's just confusing, like with the phrase, uh, when it isn't a simple father to son or daughter, but great-grandfather to, who knows, dozens of heirs in his case. So that's why, though it may sound like a form of simplification to skip women, it is the opposite. Instead of simply moving on to the next oldest descendant each time, you have to skip parts of the family tree, especially in the case of sons of daughters. Do you pass over the woman claimant and all her male children or just her? If the former, in what order do you do it? You see what we mean? It's already more complicated, and that's not the full extent of it. Look at the phrase again. It would be easier if the heir to the twins was simply his oldest living descendant. If Jaehaerys had just listened to Alysanne, not only would he have avoided the second quarrel, which saw a full two years go by before the queen forgave the king, but he might have prevented the Dance of the Dragons and other wars afterwards. Perhaps. But that's no fun, and it does not do a lot of good to imagine paths not taken. It's hard not to do so when a key character in question has a nickname, which is a direct call-out to that very path not taken. So now, let us consider. The Queen Who Never Was His grace grieved for Prince Amon until the end of his days, but the old king never dreamed that Amon's death in 92 AC would be like the hell horns of Valyrian legend, bringing death and destruction down on all those who heard their sound. If the real-life Wars of the Roses reveal some of the inspirations for the origins of the Dance of the Dragons, the story of Rhaenys Targaryen in many ways is the in-story key to understanding the underlying causes of the dance. Rhaenys was the only child of Jaehaerys and Alysanne's eldest surviving son, Aemon, Prince of Dragonstone, and Jocelyn Baratheon. Jocelyn herself was the half-sister of Aemon's parents, being the daughter of Alyssa Valerian and Lord Rogar Baratheon, and thus was her husband's aunt. Yeah, <laughs> And as usual, when dealing with Targaryens, the family connection doesn't end there, since the Baratheons sprang from a bastard son of Lord Arian Targaryen, while Arian's wife was Valena Valerian, herself half Targaryen on her mother's side, making the Valerians cousins to the ruling family of the Seven Kingdoms. So, cousin, sister, aunt, Jocelyn was raised at court and married her nephew in 70 AC when she was 16 and the prince was 15. There stands the future of the realm, Sir Giles Morgan is reputed to have said on the occasion of the wedding of the beautiful and statuesque dark-haired lady and the handsome silver-haired Prince of Dragonstone. Some four years later, Lady Jocelyn would be delivered of a daughter, of which event Archmaester Gildane would have this to say. Princess Rhaenys was born on the seventh day of the seventh moon of the year, which the Septons judged to be highly auspicious. Large and fierce, she had the black hair of her Baratheon mother and the pale violet eyes of her Targaryen father. As the firstborn child of the Prince of Dragonstone, many hailed her as next in line for the Iron Throne after her father. When Queen Alysanne held her in her arms for the first time, she was heard to call the little girl, our queen-to-be. What King Jaehaerys might have had to say on the matter is not recorded, however. In due course, the second son of the royal family, Prince Balon, was wed to his sister, the Princess Alyssa, 
who would ultimately give her husband three sons, though the third would follow his mother to the grave in 84 AC. The two surviving boys would play a prominent role in the dynastic struggle we're exploring here. The elder, Prince Viserys, tangentially through his own succession crisis, and the younger, Prince Daemon, more directly through his marriage to one of the claimants. More on them later. Rhaenys was known as a fierce young beauty, a dragon rider who had claimed her aunt Alyssa's mount, Maelys the Red Queen, sometime after Alyssa's death in 84 AC. In 90 AC, at the age of 16, Rhaenys married Lord Corlys Valerian, more than 20 years her senior and already known as the Sea Snake and as one of Westeros' all-time great mariners. Lord Corlys was Jaehaerys's master of ships and the head of one of the wealthiest and most powerful families in the realm who had long held political and familial ties with the Targaryens. Rhaenys and Lord Corlys would ultimately have a daughter and a son together, and it would be the son who would bear the weight of his mother's claim when the time came for truly choosing. When Jaehaerys named his second son Balon as Prince of Dragonstone in 92 AC, however, following Aemon's death, he skipped over not only Princess Rhaenys, whom his wife had once referred to as our queen-to-be, but also her unborn child by Lord Corlys Valerian. Rhaenys accused her grandfather of robbing her unborn son of his birthright, her husband was so angered that he resigned his admiralty and returned to Driftmark. Lady Jocelyn, Aemon's widow, and her brother, Lord Boromir Baratheon, were no less upset. And while some months later Rhaenys ultimately gave birth to a daughter, Lena, the king's decision resulted in that quarrel between him and Queen Alysanne that would last for two years. They were at last reconciled due to the efforts of their daughter, Septa Magell, but they never did agree on the matter of succession. Not only that, but the Sea Snake, now the richest man in Westeros, would never seem to forgive the king that we know of, and would much later betroth his daughter to the Sea Lord of Bravos' son, a very powerful alliance made by a very ambitious man in Lord Corlys Valerian. Though this marriage fell through, there can be little doubt Rhaenys was at least agreeable to the decision, and it may have even been her idea, this marriage. Rhaenys and Corlys would also later partner with Prince Daemon, another highly ambitious man. Had Corlys' wife been queen, these dangerous factions probably would never have formed in the first place. I mean, these people, along with Rhaenyra, were the eventual core of the Black Faction over time. Though Viserys would assuage some of this damage by betrothing Rhaenyra to Laenor, Rhaenys and Corlys' son, that is, the Blacks and the Greens were already in existence. The factions were already there. And what did Jaehaerys gain from all this? What was the upside to skipping women in the succession? I don't even know that there was an upside. Had Rhaenys been named heir, maybe Balon, the Spring Prince, maybe he would have stormed off. Who knows? But he had no lands of his own. He did have a dragon. But upsetting him seems less dangerous than upsetting House Valerian. They're much more powerful. The richest house in Westeros at the time, I repeat. Given Alysanne's anger over the matter, Balon himself may have been surprised that he was named heir. He may not have expected it. Or perhaps he pushed for it. We just don't know a whole lot about him. He did, after all, want to be like his brother... And his brother had been heir, so maybe that's it. But again, this is total speculation. He did love his brother and maybe didn't want to usurp his niece. It's just an open question, just as it was with Aemon. 
We can wonder if certain lords of Westeros would rise against a queen, given Andal tradition and all. But there was no great outcry when so many swore to Rhaenyra as the heir. And really, who rises against all those dragons? Only those with dragons of their own, of course. Those with Andal sensibilities might rally behind a prince over a princess, but rising against dragons outright... That stopped when the Faith Militant was disbanded. And as we'll see later, the objections against Rhaenyra were not really about her gender. The main concerns were that Rhaenyra's eldest three sons were bastards, which, to be fair, was almost certainly true, and that Daemon becoming king would be a terrible thing for the realm, which, to be fair, was also almost certainly true. The Greens, of course, will turn out to be, well, not exactly moral paragons either. The alternative they offered may have even been worse, especially when paired with the cost of civil war. But we'll get to that later. In these things, at least, the bastardy and the personality of the rogue prince, Daemon Targaryen, we cannot blame Jaehaerys. Not even Alysanne could have seen that coming. You'd need one of those dragon dreamer Targaryens for that. But Alysanne would live to see the weddings of several of her grandchildren. Viserys, son of Balon and Alyssa, to his cousin Emma Arryn, the daughter of Lord Roderick Arryn and Princess Della in 93 AC, and then Daemon, Viserys' younger brother, to Lady Rhea of House Royce in 97 AC. Good Queen Alysanne died three years later, having outlived all but three of her children, and still no doubt convinced that, quote, a ruler needs a good head and a true heart. A cock is not essential. Rhaenys would prove herself more than equal to any man, and likely showed to many that she would have made a fine queen. Though she did not wear the crown, she continued to have great influence. And of course, the precedent her grandfather set would continue to have great influence as well. Not only will she continue to have a role, she would continue to be used as an example. The Great Council of 101. It was the year after Alysanne's death, less than ten years after being named his father's heir, that Prince Balon, then serving his hand to the king, suffered a burst belly during a hunting trip and died some days later. Although Jaehaerys had sired thirteen children, six of whom were sons, he had now outlived all of them except for two, Vagon, who was a chain maester of the Citadel, and Sarah, who had fled to Lys in disgrace after being caught up in a series of sexual escapades and was considered as good as dead by her father. As for the rest, Princes Aegon, Gaiman, and Valerian had died as children, along with their sister, Princess Daenerys. Daella and Alyssa died following childbirth, while Gael and Viserra also both died tragically young. Majel, a septa, had perished of grayscale in 96 AC, and now Balon had followed his elder brother, Aemon, to the pyre. It was 101 AC, and without a son of the current king to inherit, the succession, once thought to be so secure, was in crisis, and on the advice of his only surviving son, Archmaester Vagon, King Jaehaerys declared a great council, quote, to discuss, debate, and ultimately decide the matter of succession. All the great and lesser lords of Westeros would be invited to attend, together with maesters from the citadel of Old Town and septas and septons to speak for the faith. And so it was that nine years after the precedent of the Rhaenys and Balon decision, the king once again had no clear heir, 
Balon's death created a conundrum, and the Great Council, the first ever, was called to resolve it. Note that had Rhaenys simply inherited in the first place, there'd have been no need for this Great Council at all. But it certainly happened, and citing the precedent of 92, it passed over all female candidates outright and chose Prince Viserys. The precedent set and oaths sworn at the time had far greater impact than any of those responsible for them could have possibly foreseen. They were officially on the aforementioned path to strife and suffering, if they weren't already. In determining that Viserys would be heir, they again passed over his cousin Rhaenys, whose father was the older brother of Viserys's father. And to complicate matters, Rhaenys had had a daughter and later a son who were passed over as well. Regardless of extenuating circumstances, in the eyes of many, this either set or re-established precedent. The crown could not pass to a woman in the future, nor through the female line when a male line exists. I say this interpretation is very clearly incorrect, because these circumstances are far too exceptional to make any precedent clear. But I wasn't there to argue the case at the time. Surprise, right? You thought I was actually there until I made that disclaimer. It's even dubious whether precedent can ever be set, given that the king's word supersedes written law and the word of prior kings. But when the king dies, how does that work then? A living king can supersede law, but can a dead one? Lots of questions. Thus, you can see why none of this is clear. Perspective is also important here. While it's easy to see the precedent of passing over female claims, another way to look at it is that Jaehaerys set the precedent that the king picks his heir. Setting gender side isn't the point. Though that was clearly not the prevailing view, it may not have even come up, but I wonder if it did. I think it's a valid interpretation. Looking back, there had been a time not long ago when everything seemed so secure. As the children grew, Grand Maester Benefer watched them closely. The wounds left by the enmity between the Conqueror's sons, Anus and Magor, were still fresh in the minds of many older lords and Benefer worried lest these two boys likewise turn on one another to bathe the realm in blood. He need not have been concerned. Save mayhaps for twins, no brothers could ever have been closer than the sons of Jaehaerys Targaryen. Little could Grand Maester Benefer have known early in Jaehaerys' reign that it would be the descendants of Aemon and Balon, the two princes he watched so closely during their childhood for signs of friction, who would once again bathe the realm in blood when the dragons danced nearly 80 years since they had done early in Magor's reign. For long after Benefer perished during the Shivers, the root of the Dance of the Dragons would arise in the Great Council of 101 AC, when the claims of the grandson and son of Aemon and Balon, respectively, would be considered by the lords of the realm. When Jaehaerys declared a great council would convene to decide the matter of the succession, he revealed his own lack of will to make the choice that lay before him. Again. Now 67 years old, he had lost his wife and all but two of his children, including Balon, whose recent death precipitated the need for the council in the first place. The matter of the succession had been the key point of contention that led to the, his second estrangement from his late wife, and we can imagine that in his grief the king was simply loath to tread that ground again, even though she was gone. Fire and Blood tells us Jaehaerys' position on the matter. Let the claimants make their cases before the assembled lords, his grace decreed. He would abide by the council's decision, whomever they might choose. As for the assembled lords, we're told they came from, quote, every corner of the realm, from the Dornish marches to the shadow of the wall, from the three sisters to the Iron Islands. With no clear idea how many would actually arrive, 
It was decided that the largest castle in the realm must be used to accommodate what was expected to be a significant gathering. And so they were summoned to Harrenhal, since Queen Raina's death, now the seat of House Strong. And in the end, over a thousand lords came with their retinues. Lords paramount, minor lords, observers from Dorne, representatives of the faith, claimants from across the narrow sea, all with squires, men-at-arms, grooms, serving men, and the expected hangers-on in the form of free riders, hedge knights, camp followers, mummers, thieves. The area around Harrenhal became the fourth largest city in Westeros for a time, and the assembling lasted for months. But once the deliberations began, they lasted a mere 13 days. Fourteen claims were ultimately brought before the council, including nine lesser claims that were easily dismissed, three bastard sons of Princess Sarah from Essos, several men who claimed descent from various Targaryens of old, one who claimed to be Jaehaerys' own bastard, who was exposed as a liar by the king himself, and of the five remaining claims, Vagon's was dismissed outright due to his vows as a maester, while Princess Rhaenys and her daughter Lena were passed over on account of their gender according to the prevailing view of Targaryen precedent, which included the old king's decision of 92 AC following the death of Prince Aemon. And that left the real debate to be conducted between two candidates, Balon's eldest son, Prince Viserys, and Rhaenys's son, Laenor. Viserys was, as we said, married to his cousin, Emma Arryn, and his parents were both children of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, he was a man grown, 24 years old, and had a four-year-old daughter, Rhaenyra. He had, the year after his father was named Prince of Dragonstone, claimed Beleriand the Black Dread as his own dragon. Though old and sluggish, Beleriand was still a potent symbol of Targaryen power, a giant black dragon, more than 200 years old, born in Valyria, who had been ridden by the Conqueror himself. Although Balerion had died the following year and Viserys had never claimed another dragon, the importance of their association can't be overstated. Most importantly, though, Viserys was descended from Jaehaerys, and thus the Conqueror himself, completely in the male line, which none other save his younger brother Daemon could claim. And while the principle of primogeniture, which is descent through the eldest child regardless of gender, favored his cousin Laenor, Laenor was a generation further removed than Viserys, being the old king's great-grandson. Moreover, Laenor was only seven years old, and though he possessed a young dragon sea smoke, he hadn't yet ridden. He was possessed of the Targaryen look, if not the name, as his claim came through his mother, whose own claim had been passed over twice now. Rhaenys was not to be dismissed so easily, though. The full wealth and power of Princess Rhaenys and Lord Corlys were on display at the council. Gifts and eloquent words were offered by the Sea Snake and the Queen Who Never Was in support of their son's claim, and some important supporters were won. Rhaenys's uncle Lord Borman Baratheon, Lord Stark, Manderly, and Dustin from the north, Lord Blackwood from the Riverlands, and from the Valerians' own neighbors, Lords Bar Emmon and Celtigar. But it was not enough. While the results were never made public, it was suggested that Laenor's claim was defeated by a margin of 20 to 1, meaning his supporters made up less than 5% of the council. It's perhaps worth noting that, with a single exception, Laenor's supporters would all fall on the side of the blacks during the dance, perhaps indicating that those handful of lords believed the female claim should not be discounted, or perhaps simply indicating an abiding personal connection with House Valerian. Whatever the case, Viserys was confirmed as Jaehaerys' successor, and due to the overwhelming support for his claim, many now considered the issue of female line descent to be settled once and for all. 
the throne could not pass to a woman, nor to her male descendants while a direct male line descendant lived. This had been the case with the conqueror himself, who was younger than Visenya, and with Jaehaerys, who succeeded Magor, though his sister Rhaena was elder. And now, following the old king's decision in 92 AC, in this great council of 101, it seemed to be confirmed. Viserys was at the throne, and his sons after him. But as of yet, Viserys had no sons, and the sudden shift in succession had a ripple effect. The Rogue Heir When Jaehaerys passed away in 103 AC, six-year-old Princess Rhaenyra sat by her father's side at his accession tourney at Maidenpool. The victor of the melee there was one Kristen Cole, a handsome young knight from the Stormlands, who defeated Prince Daemon, giving the young princess his victor's laurel and begging her favor to wear in the joust, where he once again defeated Prince Daemon. Rhaenyra, young as she was, fell in love instantly, and two years later, when Sir Ryan Redwine died, Sir Kristen was named to the King's Guard and made Rhaenyra's sworn shield. The rise of Sir Criston's star was not without acrimony, though. Prince Daemon, the younger brother of the king, did not appreciate being defeated. A warrior of some renown and a hot-headed young man, Prince Daemon regarded himself as his brother's heir, and according to the precepts so recently set forth by the Council of 101, he wasn't wrong. But perhaps as an insurance policy of sorts, he also made a point of being quite attentive to his young niece and following Viserys' succession, he petitioned to have his childless and loveless marriage to Rhea Royce annulled. His brother denied him this request, but we can see, reading between the lines, that Damon was probably setting the table for a match with his niece to secure his claim one day, certainly not unheard of in Targaryen history, and perhaps an echo of the real-world rumor that the Yorkist King of England, Richard III, had designs of marrying his elder brother's daughter, Elizabeth of York, to shore up his own claim. Not that such a thing would have been considered at this point, Rhaenyra was a little girl, a spoiled princess who loved her dashing uncle that brought her exotic gifts, but she also loved her white knight, Sir Criston, and so the friction between these two men was real and would be significant in years to come. As for Damon, not only was he married to Lady Rhea Royce, but from the outset he clashed with Viserys's hand, Sir Otto Hightower. Sir Otto had served King Jaehaerys in the same role following Balon's death, and his young daughter, Alicent, had become the old king's companion, reading to him and seeing to his needs in his final years. Sir Otto was ambitious, and he no doubt saw Prince Damon as a threat. And Damon likely appeared very dangerous to the proud and conservative Sir Otto. Damon favored martial pursuits, bearing the sword Dark Sister since his grandfather had bestowed it upon him at the age of 16. A dragon rider, he had claimed Caraxes, the red dragon known as the Bloodworm, following the death of his uncle Aemon, Caraxes' original rider. Equally at home in wine sinks and brothels, as at court, Damon called himself the Prince of the City, but he became known as the Lord of Fleabottom when he was given command of the City Watch after Sir Otto convinced Viserys to remove Damon from the small council, where he had served briefly as Master of Coin and Master of Laws. As commander of the City Watch, Damon took the opportunity to remake the organization. He attired them in black mail and gold cloaks, from which they would take their nickname, the Gold Cloaks, from that time forward. He made it his goal to maintain order in the city, enforcing a harsh discipline to thieves, rapists, and drunkards alike. Sir Otto was so alarmed by Damon that he wrote to his brother in Old Town, 
On no account can Prince Damon be allowed to ascend to the Iron Throne. He would be a second Magor the Cruel, or worse. Worse, wow. Hmm. At that time, Sir Otto supported Rhaenyra being named as Viserys' heir. Many others are said to have agreed with him, but the recent president of the council that had decided Viserys' own succession would prove to be a significant hindrance. More complications upon complications. Rhaenyra, in the meantime, had become her father's cupbearer and a dragon rider as well, claiming the yellow she-dragon Cyrax in 104 at the age of seven. Cyrax was a young, though mature dragon, named by Rhaenyra herself after a goddess of old Valyria. She was large enough to be ridden in 104 and would become a formidable presence by Rhaenyra's adulthood. Adored by both her parents, Rhaenyra was known as the Realm's Delight. By the age of eight, she had become a fixture by her father's side, a beautiful, precocious, and indulged child thought to embody the gifts of those who possessed the blood of the dragon. And that was the state of affairs when it was announced that Queen Emma was expecting another child in 105 AC, one that Viserys was certain would be a son. But as it turned out, not four years following the Grand Council of 101, the conclusion that the succession must pass through the male line, thought to be settled once and for all, would be called into question again. The ambitions and personalities of Daemon Targaryen and Otto Hightower would play no small role, and the decisions King Viserys made in that year would have far-reaching consequences for all of his family. Though Princess Rhaenyra had been proclaimed her father's successor, there were many in the realm, at court and beyond it, who still hoped that Viserys might father a male heir, for the young king was not yet thirty. Okay, we're going to take a quick break now for some mid-roll shout-outs. And one fun thing we noticed is that some of y'all support both of our shows, so maybe there'll be some of these names coming up more than once. But hey, that's what you get when you uh, support two shows. You get two names, <laughs> or the same name twice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so thanks to Radio Westeros Valyrian Steel patrons Chris K, Lady Silverwing, Ashley, Arrowdo, Aileen, Eliana Targaryen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield. Sir Bobby the Knight, thrower of the Valyrian steel chair. Margie the Mage, JM, Dean, Casey, Sasha, Yorlen, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Christian, Jill, June, John H., Lady of the Frostfangs, Alexis, Marcel, Blythe Spirit, Rachel, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, and Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den. And Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. That's a familiar one from our show as well. Yes, indeed. She is She is the Alpha Patron. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to History of Westeros Blood Riders, Vorsaki, wielder of Valyrian steel, Iraq with a dragonbone hilt. Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip, Gehana. And Aaron, Lady of the Long Desert, names Emma of Starfall the Queen of Love and Beauty in sight of pods and men. And from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of Househammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. In the history of Westeros, sellsword captains... Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Weirwood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Chiron Calsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, the Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. 
Hey, Mahalmanth, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. Shepherd, the Shepherd of Essos, all men are sheep before the Shepherd, heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara does show, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female, Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Cody the Crimson, Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles, and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron, the Hammer of Hornwood, Captain of the English Lions, with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, Captain of the Shadow Wolves, Our Steel is Cold, Our Vengeance Colder. And Black Alex Sand, the Bastard of Spears, Leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Blacks and the Greens Queen Emma was indeed delivered of a son, named Balon for his grandfather, the Spring Prince. The queen, however, did not survive the birth, and the babe followed her into death within a day. In the aftermath of the tragedy, the king's brother, Prince Damon, who must have been certain that his own status as heir was now assured, was heard to be making jests about the heir for a day. When King Viserys heard about Damon's tasteless joking at the expense of his grief, he resolved to stamp out his brother's ambitions once and for all. Not long after Emma's death, Viserys declared Princess Rhaenyra to be his heir and formally named her Princess of Dragonstone. Not only that, but he summoned hundreds of lords to King's Landing, where they participated in a ceremony swearing their allegiance and support to the young princess. This is the part of a king's will that goes far beyond the paper shield, what Cersei called Robert's will. Some lords and ladies would remember these vows to Rhaenyra and support her later because of them. Robert never had his lords kneeling to Stannis. We know what really happened when Robert became king. Renly was named heir to Storm's End and Stannis got Dragonstone and he got mad. And eventually he got Melisandre. This byplay between royal brothers has a lot of similarities to Viserys and Prince Daemon who resigned his command of the City Watch and retired, also to Dragonstone, with his dragon Caraxes and his paramour Mazaria of Lys. Stannis didn't have a dragon, but his mysterious eastern woman with an M name told him he would one day. The two, Melisandre and Mazaria, are far from alike, but they do have a notable number of things in common. She was known as Lady Misery and the White Worm for her pale appearance. Mazaria was a dancer and sex worker who had become Daemon's favorite lover in King's Landing. Her role in the politics of Westeros was just beginning here, when on Dragonstone she became pregnant with Daemon's child, and he bestowed a dragon's egg upon her, and it probably wasn't made of stone. Not being in an accepting mood with his brother, when he heard this news, King Viserys commanded that the egg be returned, and that Daemon send Mazaria away and return to his wife in the Vale, or be attainted as a traitor. No doubt, still keeping his ambition in mind, Daemon complied, but when Mazaria, en route back to Lys by ship, lost her child in a storm at sea, 
It was said Damon's heart hardened against his brother from that day forward. Mazaria's heart may have hardened as well. She would later show quite a bit of cruelty with a notable amount of it aimed at children. Viserys' grandchildren in particular, whom Damon was no fan of either. The estrangement between the brothers would last for the next six years, during which time Damon would join with Lord Corlys Valerian, the Sea Snake, whose own wife and children had been passed over in the various succession struggles, just as Damon had recently, in an alliance to conquer the Stepstones and drive out the Triarchy of Mir, Tyrosh, and Lys, naming himself King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea in the process. And during those years, Viserys would consent to leave his brother to his own devices, primarily because he himself had decided to remarry. The obvious match was widely thought to be young Lena Valerian, a dragon rider whose mount was Vagar, Viserys' own father's dragon. A match with House Valerian would have gone a long ways towards healing the rift left by the old king's decision in 92 AC and the Great Council of 101, it would have also been in keeping with Targaryen tradition of marrying close relatives, and had they known it, it would almost certainly have prevented the eventual alliance between Prince Daemon and Corlys Valerian that would ultimately prove so dangerous to Viserys's as yet unborn offspring. But Lena Valerian was only 12 years old, and like his namesake, Viserys III, and undoubtedly the only way in which they were alike, Viserys I had a mind of his own. While in many matters he was content to let others make decisions, to defer to what was easy, or simply kept the peace, in this matter, Viserys would not be swayed. He had his eye on the daughter of his hand, Sir Otto Hightower. Lady Alicent, as mentioned previously, had come to King's Landing with her father and been a favorite companion of King Jaehaerys in his twilight days. She was a clever and lovely young woman of 18 and of excellent lineage though some might be forgiven for remembering the ill-fated Cerise Hightower, whose husband Magor had been the last Targaryen king to marry outside the extended Valyrian family, and worry about the portents of such a match. But since no one could accuse Viserys I of making decisions based solely on the good of the realm, he got what he wanted and took Lady Alicent to wife in 106 AC. While Lady Lena Valerian seemed unconcerned by the slight, and Princess Rhaenyra by all appearances welcomed her new stepmother, the king's brother Damon was so angry it was reported he whipped the serving man who brought him the news within an inch of his life. Lord Corlys was almost as displeased with this new affront to his house. Neither would be present at the wedding. It was this mutual disgruntlement more than anything that led to the alliance of the two men in the Wars of the Stepstones, which King Viserys, reverting to his usual habits of not taking uncomfortable positions on thorny issues, was content to ignore. Believing the Enterprise would take Damon's mind off his old fixation of the succession. And with the king's new marriage proving to be more fruitful than his first, this might have seemed to be a good strategy. Queen Alicent presented the king with his first son, named Aegon, in 107 AC. Daemon's place in the succession was falling, though in light of Viserys' previous declaration of Rhaenyra as his heir, the issue was still unclear. The king made no move to announce any change as far as his daughter was concerned, and this troubled Sir Otto the Hand, who had once been so staunchly in Rhaenyra's court. Sir Otto now began to push the king to change his edict on the succession in favor of Aegon, his own grandson. But the king proved stubborn on this matter as well, and by 109 AC clearly came to find the pressure tiresome. Sir Otto was stripped of his chain and sent back to Old Town, and Lord Lionel Strong of Harrenhal was named Hand in his place. In the same year, 
Queen Alicent gave birth to a daughter, Helena, and a second son, Aemon, followed a year later. But even without Sir Otto's voice lobbying for his grandson, and in spite of the king's desire to avoid conflict, in those years, the initial friendship between the princess and the queen cooled considerably, and there arose at court a distinct queen's party and a party of the princess. In 111 AC, the king decreed a tourney in honor of the fifth anniversary of his marriage to Alicent. The queen arrived wearing a green gown, while 14-year-old Rhaenyra dressed in the black and red of House Targaryen, and from then on, the two parties would be called the Blacks and the Greens. Besides the hardening of party lines, the anniversary tourney was notable for two other events. First was the victory of Sir Criston Cole, who, wearing Rhaenyra's favor, defeated all the queen's champions in the tourney. Second was the return of the king's prodigal brother. Damon appeared in the skies above the city on Caraxes, wearing the crown Corlys Valerian had placed upon his head when they conquered their kingdom of the Stepstones. But when he landed on the tourney grounds and approached his brother, he knelt and offered his crown up as a token of fealty. The reunion and reconciliation of the two sons of the beloved Spring Prince won the approval of the crowd and the delight of Princess Rhaenyra, who had always adored her uncle. Prince Damon remained in King's Landing for much of the rest of the year returning to the small council and, as before, currying the favor of his niece. While he treated the new queen with outward deference, it was said he entertained Rhaenyra by mocking the queen's party as lickspittles and was visibly cool to his young nephews, whose births had pushed him further down the line of succession. But about six months after his return, something happened that caused him to fall out with his brother again. Grand Maester Runciter reports only a quarrel and that Daemon left the capital to resume his wars in the Stepstones. Septon Eustace asserts that Damon seduced his niece, and the pair were found together by Sir Eric Cargill of the Kingsguard. Rhaenyra begged to marry her uncle, but her father refused to hear of it, citing Damon's wife in the Vale, and instead sent his brother away once more. It's Mushroom the court fool who gives the most salacious account of events. As usual with Mushroom, we should take this well salted, but his tale relates that Damon endeavored to instruct Rhaenyra in the art of love for the sole purpose of supporting her campaign to seduce Kristen Cole. Interestingly, Mushroom insists that Rhaenyra preserved her maidenhead as a gift for Sir Kristen, and goes on to tell the White Knight's horror when Rhaenyra made her offer. Once word of this reached the king, he was forced to take action against his brother. In spite of Damon's offer to marry Rhaenyra, Viserys instead decreed he must leave King's Landing and never return again upon pain of death. The falling out of the brothers and exile of Prince Damon is the one detail all three sources agree upon. Although, as we've seen, his designs upon Rhaenyra were real and should not be ignored, so it seems likely that something in between Septon Eustace and Mushroom's account is what occurred. Remember that Damon's first request that his Royce marriage be set aside came even before Queen Emma's death. And Fire and Blood definitely seems to confirm that, starting shortly after his brother's ascension, Damon had waged a campaign of endearing himself to his niece with the ultimate goal of marrying her and thus merging his own strong claim with hers. Obviously, Alicent's sons were getting in the way of that plan, though no more so than his wife in the Vale. And as an aside about Lady Rhea Royce, it's probably worth noting that when Damon was matched to her, both his father and grandfather were still alive, and the Great Council had yet to name his brother the heir, so while his place in the succession at the time was still quite strong, 
It's questionable whether he would have been matched with a Royce had the eventual situation been known and had his grandmother, famed for her matchmaking, not been alive. While there was a bit of a shortage of Targaryen females at the time, and we don't actually know for sure that Alysanne had a hand in the match, it was definitely her M.O. to seek dynastic alliances outside of House Targaryen. However, there is a strong case to be made that introducing new players can lead to discord, and this, perhaps as much as the need to maintain their bloodline for magical reasons, provides a compelling explanation for generations of Targaryen incest, and we can point to real-world intermarriages of European royal houses for centuries as an example of this concept in practice. So perhaps a betrothal to his cousin, Lena Valerian, in spite of the age difference, would have been a more prudent choice in terms of dynastic preservation from the outset, either for Damon or, as we've already said, a few years later for his brother following Emma's death. That Lena eventually ended up marrying Damon years later proves as much. In terms of the years of Viserys' reign, we can definitely agree that the match to Lady Royce was not a success and in the end proved to be not much more than a barrier not only to Daemon's ambition, but to the shoring up of the Targaryen dynasty. That the dynasty needed shoring up should, by this time, be obvious. Of all the children of Aenys and Alyssa, only Jaehaerys and Alysanne had produced children that had offspring. Those offspring of childbearing age were now boiled down to five. Viserys, Daemon, Rhaenyra, Lena, and Laenor. Having married outside of the family, Viserys' new wife and her sons were busily setting themselves in opposition to his firstborn child, Rhaenyra. In the face of this, the matches of Daemon and Lena and Rhaenyra and Laenor were almost inevitable, as was the conflict to come between the two factions. And so in 113 AC, when Princess Rhaenyra turned 16, her father decided it was time she was married. There was no shortage of suitors. With the sons of Lords Bracken and Blackwood fighting a duel over her, hard to imagine, I know, and the twins Jason and Tylan Lannister competing for her attention. Suit was also made by a younger son of House Frey and the sons of Lords Tully, Tarly, Tyrell, Oakheart, and Strong. There was even talk of a union with Dorne, and Queen Alicent lobbied for her own son, Rhaenyra's half-brother Aegon. Viserys rejected Aegon as being too young and ill-matched with his sister, which no doubt annoyed Queen Alicent. The best choice, King and Council eventually agreed, was Laenor Velaryon. So finally, the king seems to have realized the value of a union with House Valarian. What took so long? Perhaps his brother's coziness with them in the years since he had rejected Lena as a second wife had raised alarms? Perhaps he found Alicent's obvious ambition for her children disquieting? But without a doubt, at length it appears Viserys acknowledged the strength of the Valarian claim and sought to use it to shore up his own and Rhaenyra's position, thereby hardening the lines of division between the two factions in his court even further. The one objection that was raised to the match in council was Lenor's apparent disinterest in members of the opposite sex. In the end, the new Grand Maester, Melos, dismissed this as an issue at all, as we'll see in the case of Renly Baratheon's match with Marjorie Tyrell many years later, the dynastic imperative to sire heirs must not be disturbed by anything as simple as sexual persuasion. That Rhaenyra herself also objected is clear as is the fact that her father threatened to change the succession in favor of her younger brother if she didn't comply with his wishes, and in the end she agreed. This maneuver alone should have been proof positive for the lords of the small council and the realm that Rhaenyra remained Viserys' choice as his successor in spite of Alicent's sons. 
But the sources that reported Rhaenyra's acceptance of the match also tell two versions of what she did next. According to Septon Eustace, Sir Criston Cole, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard since the death of Sir Harold Westerling the previous year, took this opportunity to attempt to convince Rhaenyra to elope with him across the Narrow Sea. Mushroom, on the other hand, relates that Rhaenyra attempted to seduce Sir Criston, harking back to his earlier story about the princess and her uncle, and noting that she had saved her virginity for him all along and meant for him to have it, as it would mean little and less to Lane or Valerian. Again, whatever the truth of it, whether Rhaenyra rejected Sir Criston for suggesting that she, the blood of the dragon, would be willing to throw her heritage away to live as the wife of a sellsword in Essos, or whether Sir Criston held to his vows and refused Rhaenyra's advances, the two sources agree on the outcome. From that day forward, the love that had existed between the two turned to loathing, and they became bitter enemies. The addendum to Mushroom's tale is that Following her rejection by Sir Criston, Rhaenyra came across Sir Harwin Strong, the eldest son of the Hand and heir to Harrenhal, known as Breakbones, and took him to her bed. Sir Harwin had been one of the princess's suitors, and it was said he had long desired her. Whether or not we trust Mushroom's account, this is the first time Rhaenyra and Breakbones are mentioned together as lovers, and there can be no doubt that when the princess sailed for Driftmark not long after, her new champion, in place of the estranged Criston Cole, was Harwin Strong. And when Rhaenyra's marriage to Laenor was celebrated with the great tourney at King's Landing in 114 AC, her new champion Breakbones would come up against her former, Sir Criston. Sir Criston was now allied with Queen Alicent, and wearing her favor and fighting with a black rage for the Greens, he defeated Breakbones, leaving him with several broken bones, leading Mushroom to mockingly dub him Broken Bones. Sir Criston also came up against Sir Joffrey Lonmouth, the favorite of Laenor Velaryon, who was wearing the groom's favor. The wounds sustained by Sir Joffrey were so serious that he died some days later without ever regaining consciousness. Laenor never left his side in that time, and his grief was such that a cloud settled over the entire occasion. When he returned to Driftmark, there were many who doubted that his union with the princess had ever been consummated. While Rhaenyra remained at court, and the rumors grew about her relationship with her new champion, Laenor chose to spend most of his time at Driftmark with his new favorite, Carl Corey. Septon Eustace attempts to prove that the two did share a bed occasionally, if not more than a dozen times, while Mushroom implies alternately that on those occasions either Carl Corey joined them, or Rhaenyra left her husband and his lover in favor of the comforts of Breakbones' arms. Hmm. Late in the year, Rhaenyra gave birth to her first child. A boy with brown hair and eyes and a pug nose. Hmm. There were some who questioned how two parents of classical Valyrian looks and coloring could produce such offspring while looking pointedly at Harwin Strong. Yeah, so do we all. Named to Carys, by the order of the king, the boy would soon be sharing a wet nurse with his mother's new half-brother. Queen Alicent bore Viserys' third son, named Daron, in the same year. In the following year came an event that had serious implications for the tangled Targaryen succession. After nearly 20 years in a loveless marriage, Lady Rhea Royce died after suffering a head injury falling from a horse. In a story full of convenient deaths, this one might be the most convenient of all, though Damon's absence kept him from being implicated. Damon did return to the Vale from the Stepstones, but Lady Jane Arryn made it clear that he wasn't wanted there, so he then stopped in at Driftmark for a visit and was reunited with his cousin Lena, now a lovely young woman of 22. 
Lena had been betrothed to a son of the Sea Lord of Bravos for nearly a decade, but in the way of Bravos, when his father died, he lost his position, and being a wastrel, he soon lost most of his family's wealth as well. Lord Corlys had postponed the wedding, but he didn't seem to be able to rid himself of the betrothal, for the lad had become a fixture at Driftmark. Some would say that Damon fell in love with Lena, while others would say it was ambition and opportunism that led him to ridicule and taunt the young man until the boy had no choice but to challenge Damon to a duel. With Dark Sister in his hand, Damon's victory was swift, and he married Lena two weeks later, without waiting to ask permission from his brother the king. Deciding it would be in their best interest to avoid Westeros for the time being, Damon and Lena flew to Essos on Caraxes and Vagar. After visiting several cities, they settled in a house outside of Pentos when Lena learned that she was pregnant to await the birth. In the meantime, Rhaenyra gave birth to another son, Lucerys, who had the same brown eyes and hair and pug nose as his brother. While the king was delighted with his new grandson, Queen Alicent reportedly made mock of his looks openly, telling Lenor, do keep trying. Sooner or later, you'll get one that looks like you. The rivalry between the princesses and the queen had reached the point where the hostility was obvious, and the two women kept to their separate residences from that time onward. Alicent at the Red Keep and Rhaenyra on Dragonstone. Lady Lena gave birth to twin daughters in Pentos. Bela and Reyna were named after their paternal grandfather and maternal grandmother, and their birth would lead to the second reconciliation of Daemon and his brother Viserys. The following year, Rhaenyra gave birth to her third son, this one named for Laenor's old favorite, Joffrey Lonmouth. Like his brothers before him, though, Prince Joffrey had the brown hair and eyes that members of the Green Party called common, and many now openly whispered that Harwin Strong, not Laenor Velaryon, was the father of all of Rhaenyra's sons. But these things were not said in the king's hearing and there still remained no doubt that Viserys still intended his daughter to succeed him, and her sons after her. He was noted by Septon Eustace holding Prince Jacarius on his knee as he sat the Iron Throne, telling the child, One day this will be your seat, lad. And so the six princes, Alicent's three sons, and Rhaenyra's three, for many years spent much time together, at court functions, at their studies, and in the training yard. But rather than the hoped-for closeness that Viserys assumed would blossom, the opposition of their mothers took root. Full of resentment for their nephews, Alicent's sons placed the blame for their own demotion from what their party viewed as their birthright upon the shoulders of the Valarians. But as Rhaenyra and her family now spent a lot of their time on Dragonstone, there also arose during those years a close friendship between the princess, her uncle, and his new wife, her own sister-in-law. It was said that the three spent many hours together flying their dragons, and that during this time Cyrax produced several clutches of eggs, which could be foreshadowing a union of Daemon and Rhaenyra to come. In 118 AC, Rhaenyra announced, with the blessing of her father, the betrothal of her two eldest sons, Jace and Luke, to Daemon and Lena's daughters, Bela and Reyna. While the children were all under the age of five, it seemed like good news for the future of the dynasty, as Rhaenyra's sons' cradle eggs had all hatched, the hatchlings called Vermex, Arax, and Taraxes, while it was thought to be only a matter of time before the twins' eggs did the same. And so matters stood in 119 AC when it was announced that Lady Lena was with child again. The child was due to be born the following year, a year that would come to be known as the year of the Red Spring. And so up next, we'll have a review of the events of that fateful year. The year of the Red Spring. 
For this was to be a year when many of the long-simmering tensions and jealousies that had plagued the Seven Kingdoms finally came to a boil. A year when many and more would have reason to wail and grieve and rend their garments. The year 120, despite it being still almost a decade from the outset of war, determined the shape of the coming conflict perhaps more than any other. The story began a couple years earlier with that developing relationship between Rhaenyra, Lena, and Daemon. As we said, the three had been spending a lot of time together, flying their dragons Cyrax, Caraxes, and Vagar. Yellow, red, and... Damn it, George, for the love of her lore, tell us what color Vagar was. <laughs> we have to wonder what Lena thought of Rhaenyra and Daemon's prior relationship. Though admittedly, whatever the shape of it had truly been is a bit cloudy given the multiple sources. But Daemon had wanted to marry Rhaenyra. That much seems rock solid. Whatever Lena's thoughts on the matter, it could not have been a major problem given how close they were. Their friendship was such that Rhaenyra was at Lena's bedside when she died in childbirth, delivering a twisted and malformed child who lived less than an hour. Not necessarily an example of dragon infantitis. The description is too vague. But if we're counting... That's in the maybe category. Something else that may be noteworthy here from a lore perspective, Lena tried to ride Vagar one last time before she died. Quite a thing to want to do when you're on your deathbed. Quite a spirit she must have had. But we knew that already. She claimed Vagar and Daemon Targaryen both, after all. Her death was the first major tragedy of 120, and it had major political consequences. But before those consequences could truly be felt, her brother was killed by a former lover. Mushroom theorizes that perhaps Damon himself had bribed the lover, Carl Corey, to do the deed. Accounts with less detail come from the other usual sources, but the bottom line was Lenor's death. Corley's Valerian offered a bounty of 10,000 gold dragons for Carl Corey, the same sum that Littlefinger offered Dantos Hollard for Sansa Stark. No one got the reward in either case, and it appears that both men died at sea. Hollard was killed almost immediately after delivering Sansa, and Mushroom suggests that Damon likewise had Quarry killed after helping him escape via ship. Quarry was presumably a loose end, and true or not, we're told Quarry was never seen again. The funeral for Lenor was quite an event, one that's easily overlooked, but I think it would be extremely memorable if we had art of it. King and court made the journey to Driftmark to bear witness at his pyre, many on the backs of their dragons. So many dragons were present that Septon Eustace wrote that Driftmark had become the new Valyria. This is a good example of George R. R. Martin applying his literary skills to his in-world history. All this acrimony between two families would lead to their deaths, and here in this crucial year it's being foreshadowed at a funeral. Nothing like death to foreshadow more death. And nothing like kids fighting to foreshadow adults killing. But these were no ordinary fights, and not over the typical things kids fight over. The sins of the fathers are oft visited of the sons, wise men have said, and so it is for the sins of mothers as well. The enmity between Queen Alicent and Princess Rhaenyra was passed on to their sons, and the Queen's three boys, the Princes Aegon, Aemond, and Daron, grew to be bitter rivals of their Valerian nephews, resentful of them for having stolen what they regarded as their birthright, the Iron Throne itself. Though all six boys attended the same feasts, balls, and revels, 
and sometimes trained together in the yard under the same master-at-arms, and studied under the same maesters, this enforced closeness only served to feed their mutual dislike, rather than binding them together as brothers. A topic not often discussed is the ownership of riderless dragons. Of course, they all belong to the king, right? Well, yeah, they must do, but a constant theme of the dance is precedence. Who comes first? And to this point, it seemed like the blacks had had the pick of the dragons. Interestingly, the first generation of the greens kids didn't seem to have eggs given to them in the cradle. And they also had limited access to the existing adult dragons. In other words, the bigger, more powerful ones. Aegon II and Queen Helena's kids, i.e. the next generation of greens, did get dragon's eggs in their cradles. So maybe something changed in those intervening years. But as it played out, The Greens did all have dragons, but they were mostly smaller ones, with the notable exception of Dreamfire, and even more notably, Vagar, who switched sides, as we'll explain. This state of affairs was probably for simple enough reasons. Dragonstone was a better spot than the Dragon Pit, and Dragonstone belonged to Rhaenyra. To compound the issue, the adult Greens had no dragons of their own, being Hightowers and all, but... The Blacks not only had Daemon's Caraxes and Rhaenyra's Cyrax, but Laenor's Sea Smoke and Lena's Vagar. Had, right? Lena and Laenor's deaths made the latter two dragons riderless and provided a catalyst for a new precedent. King Viserys, a guy who strikes me as someone who just didn't pay attention or didn't care, suggested that they all swing by Dragonstone on the way home from the funeral so Aemon could claim a dragon. If he was bold enough, he said. Aemond was by all counts quite fierce, but I suppose his father never noticed? Or maybe the issue wasn't fear, but Aemond took it as a challenge. And like a ten-year-old would, he took action right away rather than waiting. So if we're being charitable and or conspiratorial, Viserys was intentionally goading his son. But I'm not so sure he was that clever. And I don't think he expected what came next, either. I don't think he predicted that young Aemond would shift the balance of dragon power between the greens and blacks so dramatically and quickly. But if he did... Well, it was clever if it was intentional. I just don't think it was. But short-sighted as well. (laughs) It may have been better for the Greens to not have the power to challenge the Blacks. Vagar was still on Driftmark during the funeral, and Aemon desired her. Like Magor before him, an ancestor he'd proved to have a lot in common with. He wanted the largest dragon in the known world, and he got what he wanted despite his parents not wanting him to go anywhere near her. As having lost her rider recently is suggested as making dragons extra dangerous. He crept up to Vagar, only to find young Joffrey there already, who told him to stay away from Vagar. She had belonged to Joffrey's aunt, and he thought the dragon belonged to his side of the family. But Aemon shoved three-year-old Joffrey into some dragon droppings. Seriously, those are probably huge, especially if they're Vagars. And he proceeded to mount Vagar and take her out for a few laps. It's odd, isn't it? Aemon claims he was scared of being caught, but not of Vagar. That is a little odd. But he also said he was so scared of being caught that he forgot to be scared of Vagar. Guess that explains it? But how do you forget to be scared of Vagar? Anyway, perhaps the lack of that specific fear mattered. A lot of animals attack what's scared of them and yield to what isn't. Danny wasn't afraid of Drogon in the pit, and he was wounded and angry. Perhaps a bit similar to Vagar having just lost Lena months earlier. That Aemon's bonding with Vagar was unusual is recorded as well. 
call it boldness, call it madness, call it fortune or the will of the gods or the caprice of dragons. Who can know the might of such a beast? We do know this. Vagar roared, lurched to her feet, shook violently, then snapped her chains and flew. Okay, so he hung on, despite her violent shaking. Aemon is a bad kid and a worse adult, but that is impressive. Perhaps Vagar was impressed too, in whatever way dragons can be impressed. They were already there waiting for him when he returned, Joff having fetched his older brothers. They were only six, five, and three against Aemon, ten. But they had wooden swords and they attacked him right away. Aemon fought back and broke Luke's nose with a punch and took Joff's sword, then smacking Jace in the back of the head with it, which is probably the worst part of the body to be hit. Back of the skull is very soft. He mocked them as strongs, which apparently Jace grasped, and that enmity passed down from their mothers was, well, strong. Jace attacked again, but was quickly overpowered, and as Aemon began beating him, five-year-old Luke slashed Aemon's eye out with his dagger. It was seriously violent for kids before the eye thing, but wow, a prelude to what they would do as adults indeed. And the aftermath only reinforced the prelude since Alicent and Rhaenyra advocated extremely over-the-top punishments for each other's children. The king was, of course, not going to entertain the idea of a literal eye for an eye or the suggestion that Aemon be tortured to reveal where he got the idea that his half-nephews were born of Harwin Strong and not Laner Valerian. This apparently was the first Viserys had heard such a charge, and he asked his son where he himself had heard this shocking story. Aemon said he'd heard it from his older brother Aegon, who in turn said it was obvious by looking at them, which... Yeah, I mean, Aegon is right. It does seem kind of obvious, and this is one of the many reasons why we don't necessarily think Viserys was the most observant guy to ever sit the Iron Throne. Not only did he not look, but he didn't want to hear or acknowledge anything uncomfortable, as usual. He decreed that anyone calling Rhaenyra's kids strongs would lose their tongue. He also separated the two sets of boys for good and sent Harwin Strong back to Harrenhal, away from his daughter. This opened the door for things to come full circle again. With Lena dead and Breakbones out of the picture, Damon was free to pursue Rhaenyra once more. And in her grief, she was vulnerable. And it would only escalate, as upon his return to Harrenhal, Breakbones was killed in a fire along with his lord father. Larry Strong was now lord of Harrenhal, and some suspected his hand in their deaths. Another suggestion is that Viserys had done it himself to prevent Breakbones from ever telling anyone that he was the father of Rhaenyra's kids. Once again, I doubt that because I don't think he's that clever, but it definitely is a possibility. If it wasn't intentional by anyone, then the death of Lord Strong was an accident, as King Viserys had relied on him as hand of the king for some time. Choosing a new hand was difficult, and Viserys took the easy route and just called back Sir Otto Hightower. And around the time he took office, News arrived that Damon and Rhaenyra had married. Quite a surprise to the court. Very scandalous. They had not asked for permission, and their marriage was inappropriately soon after their previous spouses' respective deaths. Even the commons were outraged at the various improprieties. However, Mushroom suggests the sudden marriage was due to Rhaenyra being pregnant from Damon. They wanted to avoid the child having bastard status. 
This theory is almost certainly true since they were both married at the beginning of the year and their child was born before the year was over. So let's recap. Lena and Lenor die. Their spouses, Damon and Rhaenyra, both remarry each other. Aemon gets Lena's dragon, Vagar and loses an eye. Breakbones and the Hand of the King die. Otto Hightower becomes Hand again. And the boy who would be Aegon III was born at the end of the year of the Red Spring. Fitting, in a way, in a year that proved pivotal in setting the table for the Great War to come, the boy who would sit the Iron Throne when it all ended was born. And thus that dreadful year, 120 AC, ended as it began, with a woman laboring in childbirth. Princess Rhaenyra's pregnancy had a happier outcome than Lady Lena's had, as the year waned she brought forth a small but robust son, a pale princeling with dark purple eyes and pale silvery hair. She named him Aegon. Prince Daemon had at last a living son of his own blood, and this new prince, unlike his three half-brothers, was plainly a Targaryen. Stolen Crowns Queen Alicent was reportedly furious at the slight against her own son Aegon, implied by the name Rhaenyra chose for her fourth son. According to Mushroom, the slight was intentional, though with two Targaryen parents, we could make the case that the babe was certainly deserving of a red-blooded family name. It's to be assumed that Aegon the Younger's cradle egg hatched in short order, though Fire and Blood only reports that he was bonded with Stormcloud by his ninth year. The reason we assume they bonded much earlier than that is that when Rhaenyra gave birth to a second son by Daemon in 122 AC, named Viserys, much was made by the Greens of the fact that this babe's cradle egg failed to hatch. Was it an ill omen, as they claimed, comparable to his half-sister Reyna of Pentos's cradle egg producing a twisted and broken thing that died within hours of hatching? Whether it was or not, it would have been small comfort to the Greens because it could hardly be denied that in the decade that followed the year of the Red Spring, the balance of dragons between the two opposing branches of the Targaryen family would tip alarmingly in favor of Rhaenyra's brood in spite of Aemon's victory with Vagar. In 123 AC, Aegon the Elder was married to his sister Helena. As we said, they were both bonded with dragons, and in due course, they became the parents of the twins Jaehaerys and Jahera, who soon had hatchlings of their own. Incidentally, their third child, Maelor, born in 127 AC, was possessed of an egg that also never hatched, though we don't get to hear what the Greens made of that. Prince Aemond, of course, had Vagar, and Daron, Alicent's youngest son, was bonded with the blue dragon to Sarion, though he had yet to mount her when he departed King's Landing to serve as cupbearer to his cousin Ormond Hightower in 126 AC. On the other hand, at the beginning of 129 AC, Rhaenyra and Daemon, counting hatchlings, numbered eight dragons on their side, with two of their children carrying eggs that they hoped would soon hatch. Moreover, there were a number of unbonded and wild dragons on Dragonstone that could tip the scales even more in the Black's favor. Additionally, in that year, Rhaenyra was expecting her third child by Prince Daemon, and so of course it was expected that yet another dragon rider would join the brood. Against all of that, the Greens had six, two of whom were the hatchlings belonging to Aegon the Elder's children, nowhere near large enough to be ridden. Altogether, there were at least 20 dragons in Westeros in 129 AC, and many of them seemed to be in Rhaenyra's camp, which, if nothing else, gave them a symbolic edge over the Greens. In the third month of the year 129, after several years of ill health, 
King Viserys I died in his sleep after complaining of weariness and a tightness in his chest. He was 52 years old and had sat the Iron Throne for 26 years. Half of it. The issue of who had what dragons was about to become extremely significant. Had Viserys I been truly aware of what was boiling up around him, and I think we've made it clear that it wasn't hard to see, he would have abdicated to his daughter, and perhaps should have anyway because his health was clearly in steep decline and getting steadily worse. He could have probably ensured her a clean succession. But that would have been a lot less interesting. When the king was discovered to have died, Rhaenyra was, as usual, on Dragonstone. Her sixth child was due to be born soon, and her husband and other children were there as well, as were two of the king's guards, Sir Eric Cargyle and Sir Laurent Marbrand. Queen Alicent alone received the news that her husband had been discovered dead by a serving man, and, along with Sir Criston Cole, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, made plans to summon the small council. This meeting of the small council would be held in secret, as Alicent had no wish for the news of the king's death to be made public until she and her allies had made their plans on how to deal with the situation. In a gathering later dubbed the Green Council, Queen Alicent, her father, Sir Otto, and Sir Criston were joined by Grand Maester Orwile, the Master of Coin, Lord Lyman Beesbury, Master of Ships, Sir Tyland Lannister, Master of Whisperers, Laris Strong, and the Master of Laws, Lord Jasper Wilde. While some thought the meeting was to plan the usual details that accompany a king's death, how to deal with the body, when to ring the bells, what messages must be sent, and to whom, Sir Otto quickly made it clear that their purpose was to settle the matter of succession. His use of the term king for their new monarch seems to have left no doubt whom he expected to succeed Viserys. In the debate that went on through the night, apparently only old Lord Beesbury stood firm for Rhaenyra and for Viserys's wishes that had not been altered since nearly a quarter century previously. The rest all seemed to have cited the old king's decision to pass over Rhaenys in 92 AC and the great council of 101 that passed over the princess's late husband, Laenor Valerian. Both of these decisions, it was maintained, enshrined the principle of male heirs coming before daughters and their offspring. Mention was also made of the dangers of Prince Daemon, the peril Queen Ellicent's sons would be in, and Rhaenyra's own wanton ways. This last came from Sir Criston Cole, once the princess's sworn shield, and now her bitter enemy. Crown Rhaenyra, he warned, and she would be succeeded by her eldest son, Jaceris Valerian, no true-born prince, but a bastard. We have to wonder about this line of argument in light of the presence of Harwin Strong's brother, Alaris, on the council. But it's said the clubfoot didn't speak for or against either candidate, holding his tongue as usual. Lord Beesbury, however, did not hold his tongue, and he paid for his loyalty with his life. Whether, as the various reports have it, Sir Criston killed him in the council chamber outright, or threw him out the window, or the old man simply perished sometime later in the black cells, one thing is clear. Following Lord Beesbury having his say, no one else objected to the Queen and the Hand's plan to crown Aegon rather than Rhaenyra were reminded palpably of Cersei's maneuvering in the Game of Thrones when Robert died and she moved to arrest Ned, take hostages, and secure the capital, all with a small council in her pocket. As Rhaenyra, like Stannis, was on Dragonstone, the similarities don't end there. Although, since Rhaenyra's three children were rumored to be bastards born to a cuckolded husband, she's not without her similarities to Cersei either. However, 
Unlike Stannis, Rhaenyra wasn't preparing to fight for the throne she saw as hers. It wasn't until a week after Viserys' death that Queen Alicent at last allowed Grand Maester Orwell to send ravens proclaiming the news and the accession of her brother Aegon. A matter of days later, Aegon was crowned in the dragon pit, with Sir Criston Cole placing the crown of the Conqueror upon his head, while Alicent crowned her daughter Helena, the new queen, with the crown she herself had worn. Although Rhaenyra's child was not due another month, the rage this news provoked in the princess brought her to an early birthing bed where, after three days of labor, she was delivered of a stillborn daughter, quote, twisted and malformed with a hole in her chest where her heart should have been and a stubby, scaled tail. And remember, if we're keeping track, that this is possibly the second child so deformed to be born to Prince Daemon Targaryen. Recalling the somewhat vague description of Lena Valerian's stillborn child from nearly a decade previously, but this is definitely another entry in the overall dragony infant category. This child was a girl named Visenya and would have been the first daughter born to Rhaenyra. Cursing her stepmother and the men of the council who conspired to crown her brother, the princess proclaimed, She was my only daughter, and they killed her. They stole my crown and murdered my daughter, and they shall answer for it. And so, matching the council in King's Landing with one of her own, Rhaenyra summoned her supporters and bannermen. The Black Council consisted of the princess, her husband, Prince Damon, her Valerian sons, Maester Gerardus, the two Kingsguard who were present, and Lords Celtigar, Staunton, Massey, Bar Emmon, and Darklin, among others. But without a doubt, her most powerful supporters were Corlys Valerian, the Sea Snake, and his wife, Princess Rhaenys. Against whatever army Aegon and Alicent were marshalling in King's Landing, the Blacks had 300 men-at-arms, 100 crossbowmen, and 30 knights, who made up the garrison of Dragonstone, plus whatever force their dozen or so lords could muster. But Lord Corliss gave them the edge at sea, and his vast wealth was at their disposal. Remember that Lord Corliss was the grandsire of Rhaenyra's eldest sons, and that her victory would mean that at last he would see one of his blood sat upon the Iron Throne, the dream that had been denied to him in 92 AC, and again at the Great Council of 101. And it was the sea snake's wife, Rhaenys, the queen who never was, who made the point about dragons to the council. She, Rhaenyra, and Daemon were all dragon riders, and several of the younger generation, including all three of Rhaenyra's Valerian sons, were as well. So earlier we mentioned the unclaimed dragons on Dragonstone, and Rhaenys now did the same, pointing out there were six. Silverwing, unclaimed since Queen Alysanne's death. Sea Smoke, once bonded with Sir Laenor Velaryon, and Vermithor, the formidable former mount of King Jaehaerys. In addition, there were three wild dragons on the mountain that the small folk had named Sheepstealer, Grey Ghost, and the Cannibal. Besides the symbolic significance of their numerical dragon advantage, the potential for the blacks to put forward an overwhelming offensive on Dragonback was real, far beyond symbolic. But Rhaenyra wouldn't hear of it. Like Cersei, she would not allow her sons to risk themselves in open battle, young as they were, and potentially against a foe as dangerous as Aemond riding Vagar. She herself had yet to recover from her difficult delivery of Visenya, and the prospect of finding riders for the unclaimed dragons was too uncertain. Prince Daemon agreed, and counseled an approach that was at once more cautious and highly audacious. Rhaenyra must be crowned, first of all, as the Greens had done for Aegon. Then, they must send ravens to all the lords of the realm, commanding their allegiance and homage. Words would win the war, Damon insisted, and alliances. Rhaenys agreed, stating her certainty that House Baratheon would stand with them, as they had done at the Grand Council in 101. 
In fact, this council set about planning how to win the allegiance of most of those who had once supported Rainey's and more. Riverrun, the Erie, White Harbor, Winterfell, Pike, and Storm's End. And the audacious part of the plan? Damon declared they needed a foothold on the mainland where their host could assemble. A great fortress capable of hosting a large army and withstanding any attack their enemy could muster. Harrenhal would be the place, and Damon declared his intent of capturing it, while Lord Corliss established a blockade of Shipbreaker Bay with his fleet, protected from the air by Rhaenys astride Maelys. It was Jaceres who declared that the messages to the lords should be delivered by himself and his brothers on Dragonback as proof of their Targaryen blood. Rhaenyra at first refused, but at last she agreed that Jace would go first to the Vale, then carry on to White Harbor and Winterfell. Lucerys would have what was expected to be the easiest mission to Storm's End, while Joff, aged 11, would stay on Dragonstone. What the group on Dragonstone couldn't know is that Aegon had already sent his own envoy to Storm's End. Before Viserys' death was even made public, Prince Aemon, riding the mighty Vagar, had been sent to forge an alliance with Lord Boros Baratheon by taking one of his four daughters' hands in marriage. In the meantime, ignorance was bliss and the arrival of Sir Stephen Darklin of the Kingsguard from the capital, bearing the stolen crown of Jaehaerys the Conciliator, which had also been worn by the late king, was an occasion for celebration. Damon crowned Rhaenyra with her father's crown the next day. As her first act, she declared Queen Alicent and her father, Sir Otto, traitors and rebels. Her half-siblings she would forgive if they would come and ask forgiveness before her. When the news of her coronation reached the Red Keep, however, Aegon made much the same declaration about Rhaenyra and Daemon. Grand Maester Orwell still hoped for a peaceful solution and begged to be allowed to bring an embassy to Dragonstone to try and negotiate a settlement. In spite of Aegon's misgivings, Orwell was sent with a company that included Septon Eustace, Sir Eric Cargill of the Kingsguard, whose twin brother Sir Eric had remained with Rhaenyra, and Sir Gwain Hightower of the Gold Cloaks. The terms Orwell brought to Rhaenyra on Dragonstone must have seemed generous to the Green Council. They declared that Aegon would pardon Rhaenyra and, quote, those lords and knights who had conspired treasonously with her against their true king, and confirm her possession of Dragonstone. In addition, her sons Jacarius and Lucerys would be confirmed as heirs to Dragonstone and Driftmark, respectively. Her sons by Prince Daemon would be given places of honor at court. All Rhaenyra had to do was acknowledge her brother as king and make obeisance to him before the Iron Throne. First, to unpack the terms, there's no doubt they were generous. There would be no punishment of rebels, and Aegon or his council were offering to con contravene generations of Targaryen tradition by conceding Dragonstone to Rhaenyra and her heirs. Symbolically, and possibly in very real terms given the apparent partiality of dragons for the island, this was offering Rhaenyra a huge advantage. But Rhaenyra Dallas did not miss the detail about her younger sons being honored guests of her brother's court. Hostages is what they would be. And the price for all this was Rhaenyra standing before her hated younger brother, retracting her claim, and bending her knee to him. This was never going to happen. Rhaenyra already possessed Dragonstone, and her sons were all there with her, safely looking forward to their futures without any help from her brother, whom they did not trust. Rhaenyra asked Grand Maester Orwell about her father, and the late king's wishes as to the succession. Viserys had named Rhaenyra, his daughter and firstborn child, as his successor, came the reply. The next question seemed obvious. Quote, With your own tongue you admit I am your lawful queen. Why then do you serve my half-brother, the pretender? 
One account tells how Orwell spoke then about the precedence of end all law and the Great Council of 101. Mushroom, always colorful and extreme, says he pissed himself. <laughs> Whatever his reply, Rhaenyra was not amused and declared that in his apparent turning away from the law, he was no true maester and had him stripped of his chain of office, which he then bestowed upon her own maester, Gerardis. It's an interesting thing about the Seven Kingdoms that while a king lives, his word is more or less law. But again and again, we see the words of kings being undone or ignored as soon as they shuffle off the mortal coil. As we said in the beginning, probably the most memorable case is Robert Baratheon's will, naming Ned Stark as Joffrey's guardian and regent. That declaration, duly signed and witnessed, proved to be no more than a paper shield, as easily destroyed and ignored as enforced once Robert had died. So too would the declaration of Viserys I that his daughter was to succeed him as ruler proved to be unenforceable when another claimant, possessed of the weight of precedence, military power, and the symbols of the monarchy, put himself forward. As Lord Varys would tell Tyrion Lannister, power resides where men believe it resides, no more and no less. But just now, Rhaenyra was not giving up without a fight. The plan to forge alliances with five lords paramount of the Seven Kingdoms, the blockade of Shipbreaker Bay, and the secret plan to take possession of Harrenhal were all points that would work in her favor. The reply Orwile took back to Aegon was nothing less than a gauntlet hurled at her brother. Tell my half-brother that I will have my throne, or I will have his head. In King's Landing, Aegon II, hot-headed as he was, heard those words and responded with rage. I offered her an honorable peace, and the whore spat in my face. What happens next is on her own head. War seemed inevitable, and Rhaenyra's formidable plans were set in motion. But her brother had stolen the march on her in one important arena, and what happened the next time their envoys met would set the stage for a bloody and merciless conflict that would change Westeros and the Targaryen dynasty entirely. We'll end this one today with an off-the-radar anecdote to show how much care George R. R. Martin took in crafting the Dance of the Dragons. Several of the details were quite different in the very early going. What follows here is a bit like reading the 1993 manuscript details, as in... George R. R. Martin's original plans for the series, most of which were changed, though some were only changed a little. At first, in the Game of Thrones appendix, it read that Rhaenyra and Aegon II were only about a year and a half apart in age, rather than about ten. Although it wasn't in the appendix, the first draft of the Targaryen family tree had Rhaenyra married to an unnamed Lannister with whom she had no children. Then in the semi-canon A Song of Ice and Fire role-playing game, produced by Green Ronin Publishing, a new draft was featured, which listed her husband as Lionel Strong. In this draft, Rhaenyra and Lionel had three sons whose names were not stated. It does say that all three sons died, indicating by this draft at least, Rhaenyra had a second marriage from which Aegon and Viserys were born, although her husband at the time was not stated. Well, as it turned out, Rhaenyra didn't marry a strong, but she did, most likely, have kids with one. It wasn't Lionel, it was his son Harwin. One example of a major detail that carried over from all those early changes is the deaths of those three children. And that 
will be a major topic of our next episode, as politics and bickering and intrigue becomes assassination, murder, and war with dragons. Yet they called it a dance. Thanks to Ashea for the production work. And to Mikhail Inkis Rain on Twitter for her fabulous voice work. Oh, yeah. And thanks to Rainey's Targaryen for helping us with the editing of the document and the script. And thanks to Michael Klarfeld for all his wonderful maps. You can find them at claradox.de. That's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X dot D-E. And thanks to Joey Townsend for the intro music. And thanks also to Zach from Game of Owns for his voice work. And thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And, as always, thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for putting the dragons in. And thanks to History of Westeros patrons, the mysterious B.R. Hand of the King, the Smiling Wolf, Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, Soldier, Scholar, Philosopher, Diplomat, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as The Best, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East, Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. And Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Bluespring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. And thanks to Radio Westeros patrons of the Castle Steel level, Amber, Alex, Convenience or Death, Eric, Leah, Maddie and Jessica, Jessica, David, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arian, Greg, Mary, Adam, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Megan E., Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt L., Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael M., Major Woody, Tanner, Iden, Dimitri B., Direwolf, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, Spentrails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed Buckeye nuts on a maze field. Clerk Nasty of the North, and Warren Peace, Wildling Ranger of the Night's Watch, Slayer of Others, and Defender of the Night Fort. And thanks to the History of Westeros Small Council, Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grandmaster Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, Master of Coin, Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. And to the lords and ladies in their castles, Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains, and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood, Lady of Desert Rose, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep, Ashlyn Winter the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikkel of Moonacre, Leader of the Weirwood Protectorate Alliance, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed, 
Lord Alistair Whitaker, Lord of the Donhold, Lord Pemmy Snugglebunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, Brian the Defender, Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, Last Scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage, The Bastard of the Wolfswood, First Forester of the Old Gods, Sworn to House Iron Weirwood, Listen for the Silence, Connor the Dungeon Master, Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass, Lady Baelish, Dark Widow of Harrenhal, Nevesa the Twin-Hearted, Suspected Skin Chainer, Holder of Castle Carryhelm, Sir Valentin of House to Jen, Creator of The Game of Predictions, Lady Lyanna Kelly of Wolf Island, Protectors of the Steelhold, Casey Stark of House Acres, Lady Kay of House Archer, Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie, Lady Rewin of House Dilstain, the Starspear, and Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, and heir to Bloodraven. Thanks as well to King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steelblade Fate. And thanks to the Queen's High Council, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of the Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. The Master of Coin, Lady Laura of House Brandos. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth, middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link, and Dennis of Lazar, Embar Persis, former head of the Celsail Company, the Fiery Shepherds, Master of Laws. Thanks as well to Lord Commander Miriam R. of the Kingsguard, and the Queen's Guard, Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides, from the seat of Dune, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. Michon the Melodious, Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Weirwood Bow, Rain. And Amber the Adamant, Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. Thanks as well to the Beard Guard, Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert, Queen Helena von Lahnstein, partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something, A Kingdom for a Drink. And finally, thanks to the History of Westeros, Night's Watch, Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss, First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow, First Steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Palewind, and First Ranger, Sir Sorstelica of House Gramercy. That's it, everybody. Thank you for tuning in, and we will be back with another episode in this collaboration in the not-too-distant future. And don't forget to subscribe to History of Westeros and Radio Westeros on iTunes or YouTube or wherever you find your podcasts. Connect with us both on Twitter or Facebook or email, and we will see you soon with another episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.